Hi again. It's great to have you joining us for our Sunday worship. As I shared earlier, all throughout the month of November, we've been going through this theme of citizenship, and today we're going to talk about what it means to have faith in color. All right, and um, you're going to have to bear with me today because I'm going to be showing a lot of props. All right, I realized when I was rewatching last Sunday's gathering. Um, and it was just static on me the whole time last week. It was <laughs> kind of boring. I don't know if you find it boring, but or maybe I find it more boring because I just don't want to look at my face for like 30 straight minutes. But um, so I have a lot of props, and I'm gonna be sharing some more pictures um, than I did last week. Okay. So today I wanted to start by talking about da 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 <laughs> spam. This glorious mystery meat. Uh, this glorious, non-perishable, delicious mystery meat. Now, um, the reason why I'm talking about Spam is because, um, well, I just ate it last night because my wife made this delicious Korean soup with this Spam. Now, if you're Korean, you might guess what that soup was. And so, see, you can see it's empty, all right? So, you know, we, our family, we love Spam at our house, okay, at our home. But I grew up with Spam, I grew up eating this stuff, and I loved it. And my other Asian American friends, we, we all loved it. Uh, now, the reason why I bring this up is because uh, a lot of my non-Asian friends really uh, hated on Spam, and I don't know why. Um, I didn't understand why they hated on Spam so much. Because to me, and you know, my Asian American friends, like we thought it was freaking delicious you know and like we loved it you know i loved you know eating like grilled spam with some eggs uh with rice for breakfast mm. or like you know putting spam in a sandwich and definitely like in like uh asian soups like particularly like um this korean spicy kimchi soup spam is like delicious in that right and that's that's what i ate last night if you didn't guess already and I loved it. But when I would, whenever I would talk about spam with like my non-Asian friends, particularly like my uh, white and like black friends, they would make fun of me so much. And I really didn't get it, you know? It, to me, that's like someone making fun of someone for liking steak, right? Or, or <laughs> someone making fun of someone for like liking sushi, right? right? This thing that like most people would agree is like really, really delicious meat. <laughs> that everyone hated on right and it wasn't until like college where i kind of learned a little bit more about the background of spam now i i had to look it up again this week because i i was wanting to share this with you but spam uh if you probably know that it's made by uh hormel foods as you can see there all right and it was invented <laughs> i want to say invented because you know, it wasn't, um, it's not, it's not really a regular food, right? But it was invented by this company in 1937 uh, as a one, because they had to use up their like pork shoulder, okay? Hormel Foods was this company in um, uh, Minneapolis, I think, uh, area, uh, where they had to like, you know, they were processing all this like uh, pork meat. And pork shoulder was always like this meat that they had left over and they needed to use it up. And so they ground it up and, you know, mixed it with other stuff. 
and like stuffed it in this can, right? And the good thing about this is that it, it has a long shelf life, right? And you can put it in your pantry. You don't even have to refrigerate it, which I know is kind of like weird, but um, it lasts like years, which is <laughs> even scarier, right? Like the expiration for this is uh, June 2023. <laughs> All right, so I know it's kind of weird, but um, it's delicious, you know? And um, But the main reason why I think that a lot of uh, I, I guess like non-ethnic people hate on spam is because of its history, right? Because a spam was made in 1937 and it was used widely during World War II and all the other American wars uh, that would follow, like Vietnam War or Korean War, right? Um, but when this happened, they you know provided the troops and also Allied forces, like even like uh, Europe and um russian or yeah russian armies would eat spam and this is like kind of new to me right and it kind of sustained their troops for you know the entire battle because it was it would never expire right and it, the uh, armies like like lived off of spam so for gis and for military and for troops who were eating this stuff um, they eventually got sick of it, right? And they thought and uh, it was kind of like a passive form of torture for them to always be eating spam. But for, you know, I'm Korean American, right? And, and Korea was really a third world country up until like relatively recently, right? And when this like mystery meat came in in this can that almost never expired, it was almost like magic for like Korean people who are struggling and starving and barely surviving and so this meat was like manna from heaven right and you know it was introduced to other places like guam and hawaii which quickly got uh mixed in uh, with their like native food right and one of the most popular dishes in hawaii is musubi which is rice seaweed and spam right and so uh this thing that a lot of like american troops ended up hating was like the source of life and sustenance for people like my ancestors who who relied on it as life right and this was like this saved their lives right and which is why it got incorporated into like our own korean dishes like like kimchi soup okay now the reason why i bring this up okay is because people think that they don't like spam because of their own personal preference but I would argue that they were predisposed to hate spam, right? They were predisposed to hate spam. So it was really no coincidence that all my Asian American friends loved spam and all of my white friends hated spam, probably because their grandpa grew up talking about how they hated spam and how it reminds them of war or something. And maybe they don't even remember it, but it's like, like lodged deep into their psyche to dislike this mystery meat. Now, th this might seem kind of random, the reason why I'm talking about spam, but this kind of social determination, okay, this predisposed social determination exists in all facets of life, especially theology, theology, which is the study of God, right? And the study of God is really also the study of ourselves, the study of humanity. Lately, the past few years, I've been reading 
um, a lot more of BIPOC, you know, uh, black indigenous people of color authors and thinkers and scholars. And I've also been reading more from women. And by doing this, I've been, my mind has been expanded to think uh, more broadly. Right? And one of the authors that um, has really uh, made a big impression on me recently is this author. His name is James Cone. See, I told you that I'm going to have a lot of props today, okay? And this is probably one of his most famous books, God of the Oppressed. This and another book called uh, Cross and the Lynching Tree. Now, uh, this cover is very, very simple, right? And you might not notice anything uh, unique about it. But if you look at the picture, right, uh, of Jesus on the cross, he kind of looks black, right, or African. And um, these two people... Uh, well, you can't really see her face, but you know, she also looks black, right? And the, James Cone uh, talks about this idea of social determination. I'm sorry if it's a little loud. I don't know, for some reason, it's like super busy on this street today. It's really only my second time recording here, so I'm kind of still getting used to it. But uh, I wanted to share this with you if I could. This idea of uh, social determination. Sociologists make an important distinction between the ideology of thought and thought's social determination. The former often refers to the psychological determination of ideas, while the latter designates the sociological element of thinking. All right? And on the next page, he continues on describing this. Social determination deals with the formation of thought, the base from which thoughts categories emerge. This is what sociologists mean when they contend that soci social reality precedes thinking. Social reality precedes like free independent thinking. So your family of origin your country of origin, your social upbringing, your religion and culture, all of these are various factors of social determination, which are all predetermined before you're even born. All right? Like these are things that we have very little or no control over. And one of the victims, unfortunate victims of this is Christianity. For some reason, Christianity has become a victim of social determination. Uh, and the reason why we know this is because Christianity in America, particularly, has become ethnocentric. Specifically, that our faith has become whitewashed. Our faith has become whitewashed. Meaning, everything that we understand about God, about theology, about our relationship with God, has to go through the filter of European white male theology or theology that comes from men of European descent. That is what whitewashed theology is. And what I'm contending to you today is that we have to have a faith in color. We need to move away from whitewashed theology to a more robust, more inclusive, and more diverse understanding of God, which is what I call faith in color or colorful faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, faith in color 
is being spiritually guided by teachers of faith from a variety of backgrounds, okay, which includes but is not limited to uh, BIPOC, women, and people from different social backgrounds. Just as our faith underwent a radical reformation in the 16th century, led by people like Martin Luther and Zwingli and John Calvin and Tyndale, we need a new reformation in the 21st century that decentralizes our faith from European or people of European descent and takes power away from that seat and influence away from people of Europe or European descent and into a, a, a more colorful faith. We need to move away from whitewashed theology and into a more colorful faith. And this is exactly what Acts 10 is talking about. Okay, this is exactly what the story in Acts 10 is talking about. Now, you'll have to forgive me because um, I jotted down some notes on my computer, but I also jotted down some notes on my notebook, like because uh, I was like, you know, rambling and, and thinking out loud and jotting it down. So, Acts chapter 10 is this encounter where Apostle Peter. Uh, received this vision okay he was fasting and he was praying and re he received this radical vision of from God uh, and and all of these different animals were on this sheet okay and 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 Peter was looking up to the sky and this sheet uh, with this large sheet containing various animals of all different kinds were coming down and Jesus heard a voice from God saying kill and eat now, this was like horrific to Peter, who was an Orthodox Jew, okay, and, and he remained a practicing Jew as, uh, as a follower of Jesus, okay? He was kind of like the original <laughs> Jew for Jesus, and he, which meant that he still abided by like kosher laws, okay? So he didn't eat pork, okay? So he would hate, <laughs> he would hate spam, all right? Uh, so he didn't eat pork. Right? But there's all these other animals, these strange animals that even like non-kosher people don't regularly eat, like reptiles, right? And, and various animals of different kinds. It was like horrific for Peter, right? And uh, he heard this voice from God saying like, kill and eat. And Peter was like, no way. This is like, <laughs> I've been eating kosher my whole life, okay? And, uh, and, and, and he hears his other voice saying like, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. Right? And so at first, what Peter believed was uh, a command to no longer eat kosher foods. He later understood that it was to be uh, his ministry to non-Jews. Now, prior to this, okay, prior to Acts 10, Peter, who was you know, arguably the most famous of the 12 disciples, and more importantly, he was Jesus' best friend, Okay, he was Jesus' BFF. He believed that his role, his um, mission in life was to uh, share the gospel, share the good news of Jesus Christ with all of his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. Okay, and he thought he was specifically called to the Jews. Little did he know that God had bigger plans for him. And through this vision, after this vision that Peter received, he understood that he was to be uh, a missionary and to share the good news of Jesus Christ of his uh, life's work 
his death on the cross and his resurrection to save us from our sins and to unite us with God forever, he, he realized that that mission that he had was for all people, okay, not limited to Jews, um, but for Jews and Gentiles. And the first person, and this was a challenge, okay, the first person that he was called to share God's love with, okay, to share this message with, was a centurion by the name of Cornelius. Now, why is that significant? Well, a, a centurion is a, a Roman, um, like a general or a, or a lieutenant who oversaw a small army of at least 100 Roman soldiers, right? Now, there's a Roman legion, which was like uh, 6,000 soldiers, and those were divided up into 10 uh, regiments, right? And those were divided up into six, right? So each of them had 100, at least 100 Roman soldiers. And, you know, Roman soldiers were like the cream of the crop, right? And so you know for sure that a centurion who oversaw this group of soldiers was going to be like a military elite. Now, Cornelius, like centurions were called upon to actually arrest uh, persecute or even kill Christians and so the fact that God was telling Peter to go to the house of Cornelius the centurion uh, was actually like it, it probably struck some fear in Peter's heart okay um, he was probably afraid for his life as a result of this and so but you know the the vision that God gave him was crystal clear and he couldn't deny it and so he went to the house of Cornelius now Cornelius was really really unique okay he wasn't a normal Roman soldier okay for one thing he was a God-fearing centurion as verse 2 tells us okay which is very unique because Rome was a polytheistic society okay they were pagan meaning like they worshiped many gods okay like remember like Zeus and Aphrodite and all those like Greco-Roman Hellenistic gods uh, so that was Rome, but for some reason, uh, Cornelius was not, okay? He was uh, monotheistic, okay? He was what the scripture tells us is that he was a God-fearing uh, Roman, all right? He was a God-fearing Roman. And not only that, he actually observed Jewish practices, okay? It tells us that in verse 3, that Cornelius actually was praying at 3 in the afternoon, which was the Jewish traditionally... The Jewish hour of prayer and so not only was he God-fearing monotheistic he actually followed Jewish customs of prayer and worship and and religion and so this man Cornelius is, is very very unique all right and this is the first person that Peter was called to reach out to okay now Cornelius it was probably it probably had less to do with Peter changing Cornelius's heart and had more to do with Cornelius changing Peter's heart because Peter not only did he feel called to reach out to only his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters he probably did not have love for Gentiles okay which are non-Jews uh, especially especially centurions who were supposed to persecute and arrest and may and even kill Christians in the first century and so really Cornelius served as um, kind of a tool to help Peter love others who were different from him right and what he thought that 
he thought that the Jewish people were God's chosen people forever, right? He thought that the Jewish people were God's chosen people forever, and even after the time of Christ, right? He still believed that the Israelites, the Jews, were God's chosen people, but God had other plans, and he was in, in, enlarging Peter's like view of an understanding of God and the world. Now, n let's bring it back to today, all right? Let's bring it back to here and now. In some ways, the unfortunate victim, as I mentioned earlier, the unfortunate victim of uh, Reformation and even the medieval church is that Europeans have come to believe that they are the new chosen people of God. Uh, I shared this last week, but I think it's worth repeating, okay? Um, because we have to know how this came about, okay? As I shared last week, um, the main goal of, and I'm going to summarize the past 2,000 years of church history into like three simple words, all right? The main goal of the early church uh, from the time of Jesus to like the fourth century was love, okay? That was really the main goal and purpose of the early church, which was love, Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Okay, and this, again, was a radical command in the Greco-Roman world uh, because love was not really highly esteemed back then, all right? And then after the time of Constantine in 4th century, the main goal of the church became to lead, okay? And this is where the center or the origins of Christianity shifted from Israel to Europe. Right, because uh, that's when actually Constantine not only made it legal to be Christian, but he mixed Christianity with Roman Empire and really wanted to lead the entire world to God. Uh, you know, as, as the Lord's Prayer says, uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Constantine took this very, very literally, meaning indoctrinate and proselytize the entire world for the kingdom of God. Now, while Constantine's intentions were good, some of the unfortunate things that came out of this were things like colonialism or like the Spanish Crusades, okay? And if they did not willingly convert to Christianity, Constantine would convert them by force. And, you know, after almost a thousand years of this, over a thousand years of this, uh, during the Reformation church period, the main goal of the church became to learn, to learn. Because Martin Luther quoted this very really famous saying, sola scriptura, when he saw all this corruption that was happening in the early church, uh, or not the early church, the Catholic church, uh, particularly with Pope Leo X, uh, with this thing called penance, where the more money you pay, the more your sins are forgiven. And they did this because they wanted to uh, rebuild St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, and so Martin Luther, uh, he coined this very famous saying, sola scriptura, which meant like scripture alone. Okay, this is the ultimate authority that he couldn't trust the, the church leaders anymore, right? And he saw the folly of their ways. Uh, and so this was really like the guiding light in Christian faith. Now, Learning is good, okay? Uh, leading others to Christ, obviously that's good. But when you do that without love, 
Okay, when you do that without love, then terrible things can happen as a result. If you if you lead others, if you if you make it the goal of your life to lead others to Christ, but you don't have love, then uh, Christianity becomes domineering. Okay, uh, it becomes manipulative. It becomes domineering, and maybe some of you have experienced this. And God's commands become a form of uh, control rather than words, wise words of guidance. Now, if learning is made a priority uh, over love then Christianity becomes legalistic. So learning without love becomes legalistic. It's strictly about right and wrong rather than being led by love, okay, by living in a way of love. The only way to truly bring about the true kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven, the way that Jesus intended is by loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Love is the primary reason why we are here, okay? And, you know, all throughout the New Testament, like, uh, Scripture reminds us of this, right? In Hebrews, it says, spur each other on toward love and good deeds. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, this is the famous chapter on love, okay? Apostle Paul says in his letter to the church in the city of Corinth, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And then in verse 13, he says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. Now, going back to what it means to have faith in color, okay? Love is the reason why we are here. And if we are called to be citizens of heaven, as we've been focusing on all month long, why are we still here on earth? Well, citizens of heaven need to focus on love and to do that we need to move away from a whitewashed theology where everything has to go through the filter and the lens of men of european descent and have a more colorful faith now the first thing about having a faith in color is that it has to remain biblical faith in color has to remain biblical the first of our four core values at our church is biblical which means that the bible is the primary source of our morals guidance and values the bible acts as a compass to our spiritual lives and uh it, it's it's supposed to act as like guardrails to the the life that we have okay if we hear from a variety of voices they still need to be consistent with the bible all right um and it doesn't all have to come from white men <laughs> I, I know that that might sound like sacrilegious to some people but you know it doesn't and I know that there are some people out there who have experienced pain abuse or even trauma with the misuse of the Bible maybe some people have tried to uh, control you or manipulate you because of the way that they have misused or misunderstood or mishandled 
this book and if that is you uh, let me first say that I'm truly sorry okay as a pastor I know that things like that can happen right and um, I'm terribly sorry that that happened to you but may I also encourage you even challenge you to not allow the mistake that someone else made prevent you from experiencing the life-giving power that can be found in this wonderful wonderful book this book is a gift from God to all of humanity for everyone to be able to read on our own and to be able to interpret on our own and this is exactly why one of the things that the Reformation was contending for okay because the Reformation before the Reformation this book was only written in three languages which was Hebrew Greek and Latin so if you didn't speak any of those la languages which most people back then didn't okay you were uh, you know out of luck right and you had to understand this book through the church which back then was centralized in Europe now the fact of the matter is this book was written mostly by non-white people <laughs> okay meaning uh, white people uh, of European descent now what's ironic about the book of Acts is that it was written by a white guy okay um, Luke uh, Luke was the only w white author of the New Testament because he wasn't Jewish he came from a Greek background and Greece is in Europe right but um, most of this book was actually written by Jewish people right and Israel uh, which is where Jews are from is in Asia and so I love telling I, I love saying this to people because it always gets a shock out of them right Jesus was a Jew right which means that he was Asian <laughs> Jesus was Asian okay but you know obviously you know he's not East Asian right so he might not look exactly like me but uh, today people might call him like Middle Eastern Okay, he would look like a Middle Eastern brown man. Now, that's very significant for the backdrop of the Bible because most Europeans do not have a long history of being oppressed and controlled and enslaved. Okay, if they do have a history of being oppressed or enslaved, it's typically by other Europeans, all right? Uh, like the uh, British like um, uh, conquering the Irish or something like that or Scotland okay so it, it but for the Jews the Jews were a, a small uh, relatively weak nation for most of its history for thousands and thousands of years right and they have a long history of being oppressed or dominated or being enslaved and so this is their history and so Jesus like has a lot he is the wounded healer right Jesus is the wounded healer and so when people like James Cone okay when people like James Cone see Jesus being whipped and being hung on a cross uh, being hung on a tree okay he can resonate a lot with that okay because uh, you know for him as a as a, a black scholar okay his ancestors came from that kind of past another similar scholar uh, that I've been learning a great deal from is uh, Howard Thurman okay this book is probably his most famous book Jesus and the disinherited 
he specifically talks to this okay how Jesus is relatable as uh, for for black Americans he says I belong to a generation that finds very little that is meaningful or intelligent in the teachings of the church concerning Jesus Christ it is a generation largely in revolt because of the general impression that Christianity is essentially an otherworldly religion having its motto take all the world but give me Jesus the desperate opposition to Christianity rests in the fact that it seems in the last analysis to be a betrayal of the Negro into the hands of his enemies by focusing his attention upon heaven forgiveness love and the like now what's really interesting about um, you know the way that people view Jesus Christ is if they are an oppressed people they can relate with Jesus like in a, in a very personal way but if they are oppressors in some ways they, they use Jesus as a tool to accomplish their own goals or to get their own needs and it really goes back to the medieval and reformation period when the center of Christianity became Europe because of people like Constantine centuries of Roman colonization Spanish Crusades uh, and the Great Reformation that happened in Germany England and Switzerland um, when this happened Europeans either deliberately or subconsciously believed that they became the gatekeepers of Christianity your understanding of God your theology and your values has to be filtered through the lens of white European male theology the theology scholars who dictated the rules of Christianity when I was in seminary um, I came across this uh, scholar his name was Watchman Nee and he was this uh, brilliant Chinese scholar and he led um, many of the underground church movements in China in the early uh, 20th century and he was self-taught and the way um, when I would read his books like I would have to read many lines or paragraphs twice because the way he thought the way he wrote was so different from the white male theologians that I read uh, for most of my seminary and uh, you know, uh, from one of his books uh, he's here's a famous line from Watchman Nee when one tries to increase his knowledge by doing mental gymnastics over books without waiting upon God and looking to the guidance of the Holy Spirit his soul is plainly in full swing this will deplete his spiritual life because the fall of man was occasioned by seeking knowledge God uses the foolishness of the cross to destroy the wisdom of the wise now when I talk to my New Testament scholar about Watchman Nee uh, my New Testament professor uh, immediately like shut me down okay and he told me that Watchman Nee is not um, uh, it, 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 it would influence me in a bad way and I never understood why okay and I thought maybe it's because the way that he was writing was so different but now looking back I, I really think it's because um, he wasn't white <laughs> it's really that simple right and my New Testament professor was a white man 
right? And, uh, you know, he said things like, oh, Watchman Nee didn't go to seminary, and, you know, he was self-taught. And I was thinking, like, well, but there's other scholars like A.W. Tozer, who was self-taught and didn't go to seminary, but, like, white people love him. <laughs> and, you know, I love him. I, I love A.W. Tozer. I, I love... I, here's the thing, okay? I'm not, like, poo-pooing on, like, white theologians, okay? I'm just saying, let's broaden our perspective, okay? I love white theologians, okay? There's, like, people like Henry Nouwen, Brendan Manning, um, Eugene Peterson, uh, Tim Keller, okay? I'm, I'm gonna always love them, okay? I love the whites. I love the whites. <laughs> but we gotta broaden our perspective a little bit, okay? Here, let me read you another quote from another author that I really, really love, okay? Her name is Lisa Sharon Harper, all right? Uh, she's a black theologian, and this is, you know, her best book. I mean, I love this book. I had, I had to read through it twice because it was so good. Okay, let me just read you this one. She, she talks about the story of the Samaritan woman when Jesus goes to the well to drink water uh, from the well and asks the Samaritan woman for a drink, okay? In John... 4 verse 7 Jesus answered the question with four words give me a drink Jesus is the groom as Jesus waited at the well and asked for a drink of water the God of all creation crossed space and time to propose to humanity and in asking this of a Samaritan woman Jesus showed that God's love is not limited to ethnicity gender or social status Mm. Jesus showed that God's love is not limited by ethnicity, gender, or social status. And here's the other thing about having uh, faith in color, okay? Is that faith in color expands our narrow view of God. Faith in color expands our narrow view of God. Another author that I've been reading from uh, lately, his name is uh, Stan Rushworth. He is an indigenous spiritual teacher. Now, I, I don't think he's Christian, okay? Um, but like I said, if the teachings of these spiritual like gui guide, uh, guides and spiritual teachers do not contradict the Bible, then take it all in, okay? Um, and, you know, and he has a few lines that he says, as an indigenous thinker, um, he really like gives you a new perspective okay and he says the westerners mindset is i have rights but an indigenous person's mindset is i have obligations an indigenous mind mindset a uh, person's uh, mindset says i have obligations while a westerners mindset uh, thinks i have rights and another uh, thing that he says is that um, you know uh, Westerners think this land belongs to me, but Indigenous people think the opposite. They think I belong to this land. I belong to this land. Now let's go back to this idea of Europeans or people of European descent as being the gatekeepers of Christianity. When Europeans started coming here to America, okay, to make a new life for themselves and to escape British tyranny and British taxes and uh, British tea. <laughs> uh, and they wanted to create a new life for themselves. Their intentions were good. But since they were predisposed to think of themselves as God's new chosen people, it would only be natural for them to view America 
as the new promised land. And if America is the new promised land, then the people who previously resided here are obstacles of the promised land or they're enemies of God because they're preventing God's people, God's chosen people uh, from their land. Kind of like when the Israelites went to their promised land and the Canaanites were there, they were viewed as enemies, right? And so uh, God commanded the Israelites to like conquer them. Uh, that's kind of the mentality that these Europeans had when they came to America. But uh, America is not the promised land, right? And Europeans are not the new chosen people, right? We, we have to move away from that ethnocentric whitewash way of thinking. And because of that way of thinking, because of that unfortunate detrimental way of thinking, these uh, European settlers, they, dis they abolished and killed literally generations worth of indigenous people here in America who are still mourning the loss of their ancestors. And hearing from uh, scholars like Stan Rushworth, uh, reading indigenous writers and thinkers really helps you empathize with their suffering. And this is the last thing that Faith in Color does, okay? Faith in Color confronts our comfortable beliefs. Faith in Color confronts our comfortable beliefs. Hearing from a variety of voices serves as a mirror to our unchallenged ways of thinking, living, and behaving. If we've only been learning and listening from one or two types of spiritual teachers, our faith will be predisposed to remain in one lane and not be challenged. For, you know, for me, for example, most of my young Christian life, all of my primary spiritual teachers were either white men or Korean men. Right? And when I was in seminary, all of the people that I read from fell into one of two categories. They're either white, male, or dead or they were white, male, or old. <laughs> uh, and, you know, at least I'm Korean-American so that I had actually, like, personal spiritual teachers who were either uh, Korean or white men. But even then, it's really, really limited, right? Even then, it's really, really limited. We need to learn from a variety of voices. And um, I think I'll just share uh, one more book, okay? But I am going to close with a quote from uh, a relatively recent scholar. Uh, this book has been really, really formative for me, um, especially uh, when I was in seminary, but also like I read it, uh, I had to read it a couple more times just on my own. Um, you see, it's kind of like worn out. Uh, Justo Gonzalez, he is a brilliant um, thinker and historian. And he says this, The reason why this country has refused to hear the truth in its own history is that as long as it is innocent of such truth, it does not, ha it does not have to deal with the injustices that lie at the heart of its power and its social order. Lately, a lot of church denominations, uh, networks, have been acknowledging some of its uh, sordid, tainted past. Like um, in 2018, a flagship Southern Baptist Seminary published a report 
uh, detailing its long history uh, and support of slavery and Jim Crow laws. The president of this Southern Baptist Seminary, Albert Moeller, Albert Moeller Jr. wrote, we knew and we could not fail to know that slavery and deep racism were in the story of the Southern Baptists. We comforted ourselves that we could know this, but since these events were so far behind us, we could move on without awkward and embarrassing investigations and conversations. While it's commendable that the sem seminary acknowledge its racist past and its previous support of things like slavery, in many ways, confronting the racism in the past is a way of avoiding its complicity in racism in the present. Author Jamar Tisby specifically uh, talks about this when the Southern Baptist Seminary acknowledged its support of slavery uh, a couple hundred years ago. In the book, The Color of Compromise, the writer Jamar Tisby challenges this notion of white supremacy in uh, merely a legacy and not as a present reality in the church in America today. He says this, Christian complicity with racism in the 21st century looks different than complicity with racism in the past. It looks like Christians responding to Black Lives Matter with the phrase, all lives matter. It looks like Christians consistently supporting a president whose racism has been on display for decades. I'm gonna close with this one quote. Uh, from James Baldwin. He says, you think your pain, your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the, of the world, but then you read. It was books that taught me the things that connected me with all the people who were alive, who had ever been alive. That's from James Baldwin. We are all connected. Not only as brothers and sisters in Christ, but as human beings, we are all connected. The suffering of one man is the suffering of all men. The suffering of my neighbor here is the suffering of myself. The pain of our black brothers and sisters in Christ is just as much our own as it is theirs. Let me close with verse by reading verse 34 of today's passage. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men and women from every nation who fear him and do what is right. God does not show favoritism. He accepts all people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for being the God that you are. We thank you for the love that you show. And we thank you for being the God of all nations. Or help us to move away from a whitewashed theology and move closer to you, Lord, and um, become more and more like you in love and in good deeds. Open our eyes, God. Help us to see the ways that we have fallen short and the ways that we have very comfortable, narrow-minded 
and maybe even uh, blind b beliefs. Lord, challenge our comfortable ways of thinking and help us to have more of a faith in color. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to put up a list of recommended readings you can do. Um, take it or leave it. I'll leave it up to you. Uh, other than that, have a blessed week, everybody. And hope to see you all next week on our Zoom call.